We're going to continue on in our series where we've been looking at the parables of Jesus, the one who turns the world upside down, the one who takes the status quo, who takes conventional wisdom and shows us a better and more fruitful way in the world. So today is the second part of our series, 40 parables roughly that Jesus teaches us in the New Testament. And we're focusing on three in particular. And today we're turning our attention to the tax collector and the Pharisee. And so I wanna begin like we always do, as we should, by reading from the story of God and God's people. These words of Jesus from Luke chapter 18, verses nine through 14. Words spoken 2,000 years ago, but words that are addressed to us who are here on this day. And so if you don't have your Bibles, no worries, you can follow along on the screen as I read to us. Luke chapter 18, verses nine through 14. He told this next parable against those who trusted in their own righteous standing and despised others. Two men, he said, went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed in this way to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unjust, immoral, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I have. But the tax collector stood a long way off and didn't even want to raise his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, sinner that I am. Well, let me tell you, he was the one who went back to his house vindicated by God and not the other. Don't you see, people who exalt themselves will be humbled and people who humble themselves will be exalted. So it's no mistake, no, and I talk about it on a regular basis, that I love music. I talk regularly about how I love music, in particular 90s music, whether it's rap music uh, or, or, or R&B or alternative music. You know I love music. But one thing I don't talk about nearly as often is how much I love movies. I, one of the things that I love to do on a Friday night is to sit down and cut on a movie. And right now I am locked in to what is one of the toughest movie phases I've ever been through, okay? I am in the Disney movie phase. No, 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 no. You don't, you don't even begin to understand what I'm talking about. I'm not even in the good Disney movie phase, right? My, my children are now 10, 8, and 5. So we're not watching Moana anymore. We're not watching Frozen and Frozen 2. No, I would be happy with those. We are now in the era of Disney movies like Zombies, Zombies 2, and Zombies 3. Has anybody heard of those? Count yourself as lucky in the presence of God, okay? Because the movies are all about a zombie who falls in love with a normal girl and how can they navigate the complexity of being in a relationship with each other. And if that sounds bad, I promise you it's worse when you actually watch it. So that's the sort of movies that I'm locked into right now. But, but I do want you to know if I'm on my own, if I'm on my own, if the kids are gone on a Friday night, if Sarah is gone somewhere else, I'm gonna sit down and I'm gonna cut on one kind of movie. And it can be any genre within this certain set of movies, but if I have my choice, I'm gonna watch 80s movies. I'm gonna watch 80s movies. Do I have any 80s movies people in the house today? It can be any kind of movie. It can be action, it can be drama, it can be suspense. And the reason I love 80s movies, it's gonna be plain to you once I tell you, the reason I love 80s movies, here's why. Because in 80s movies, the good guys are good 
and the bad guys are bad. There is no moral ambiguity in 80s movies. When you watch Dirty Dancing, you know who the good guys are and the bad guys are, okay? When you watch Roadhouse, you know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And I know those are both Patrick Swayze movies, okay? <laughs> if you watch Die Hard, one of the greatest Christmas movies there's ever been, <laughs> you know who the good guys are and you know who the bad guys are. See, I, I love to have clear definitions of who is good and who is bad. And I love that with my movies, but if you're anything like me, it isn't just movies where we like to have clear definitions of who is good and who is bad. If you're anything like me, and I dare say we would all be in this boat, we like to know who is good and who is bad in every single arena of our lives. It almost feels like we're sort of hardwired to make lines drawn in the sand. Who's on the good team and who's on the bad team? Certain times it's easy. There are certain instances where it's easy to figure out who's good and who's bad, right? The Georgia Bulldogs, we are good. The Florida Gators, they are bad. I did not say Georgia Tech, well, I could have. It's easy sometimes to figure out who's good and who's bad, right? You cut on certain cable news networks of any political persuasion and they will tell you very clearly who is good and who is bad. And it's easy for us to live our lives that way with clear demarcating lines of which team you ought to be on if you wanna be on the good side. But y'all, the reality is that life is far more complicated. And it isn't always as easy as we might think to figure out who is good and who is bad in a given situation. But that's our inclination to try and figure it out as best we can because it makes life that much easier. And we do that with every area of our lives. And what I wanna suggest to you this morning is that we do that even in our faith life. Even in our faith life, right? When we come to this parable of Jesus, the Pharisee and the tax collector, one of the first things we do is we figure out who's on the good team and who is on the bad team. And what I wanna tell you this morning is that if we take the parables of Jesus seriously, remember, these are short stories by Jesus. And what Amy Jill Levine tells us is absolutely true. If you hear a parable and think to yourself, boy, I really like that story or even worse, fail to take a challenge from it, then you have misread what Jesus is trying to say. And in our attempts to try and make the world easy, black and white, in and out, good and bad, we've done something really terrible. And here's what it is. We've taken the power away from these parables of Jesus. What I wanna suggest to you this morning is that this parable we're about to talk about, we've domesticated it. We've domesticated the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, and in the midst of doing that, we fail to see the revolutionary power that is inherent in this short story by Jesus. We've domesticated the power that is there in these stories of Jesus. And so what I wanna do this morning, what I wanna do for the next few minutes is to invite you to think, not like a 21st century American, but I want you to think like a first century Jew. 
I don't want you to think through the preconceived notions you've received in church because if you grew up in church and increasingly that isn't the case, I would like to point to our folks online, but our internet's down. So you and you alone get the sermon this morning, okay? If you grew up in church, you've heard this parable a thousand times and the danger is you already think you know where it's headed. But what if we're wrong? What if, what if Jesus actually intends to do something far more powerful? And I think he does. But in order for us to get there, I want to invite you again, not to think through the preconceived notions that you have inherited as a Christian in 2023, but instead I want you to take a step back and I want you to think what it must have been like to hear these words of Jesus spoken in their original context in the first century in Israel. He begins the parable simply. He says there were two men who went up to Jerusalem, Jerusalem at the pinnacle of Israel, where the temple of the Lord is, the place where heaven and earth literally come together. And two men go up to pray, one who is a Pharisee and the other who is a tax collector. Now, Pharisees, for most of us, if we grew up in church, we already have a preconceived notion of what the Pharisees were. Now, remember, there were three types of Jews in ancient Israel. There were the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the religious elite. They worked in the temple. They had a lush living where they got a lot of money. They had a lot of influence. They had a lot of power, and everybody hated them. You probably know the Sadducees that they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, which made them, church people, sad, you see. That's as bad as it sounds, okay, by the way. There were, there were the Sadducees, and then there were the Essenes. The Essenes were religious revolutionaries, and they believed that God had called them to leave Israel to go start a new community in a place called Qumran, and we have, uh, we have their writings. They're, they're profound and provocative. But then there's a third group, the group that we're most familiar with, the Pharisees. And when we read about the Pharisees in the New Testament, we almost always see them as the primary opponents of Jesus. When you read about the Pharisees, what you tend to think is that they are constantly trying to undermine Jesus' plans. They're constantly getting in his way and trying to trick him into saying the wrong things at the wrong time. And ultimately, this is true. The Pharisees are, are, are some of the folks that wanted Jesus dead more than anyone else. And so with our Christian eyes, knowing the whole of the story, when we think about the Pharisees, we think about bad guys. We think about bad guys. Going back to that song you learned when you were a kid, the Pharisees were not fair, you see. Very clever. No, it's not actually. Okay. We're preconditioned to, to see the Pharisees as the bad guys but I don't want you to think as a 21st century Christian who's heard the story a thousand times, I want you to think as a first century Jew. And while the Sadducees were despised by the general populace because they were in positions of power and authority, and while the Essenes were religious revolutionaries that had left the city behind, there was the third group of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the community. They were pillars. They studied Torah because they loved God. They were part of the fabric of the community. If they were living in Augusta in 2023, the Pharisees would be part of the exchange club. The Pharisees would be on Kiwanis and on Rotary and everywhere you could imagine. 
The Pharisees were ingrained in the common life of the people and they oftentimes had jobs and they loved their families and they loved their communities. And so rather than being despised, rather than being seen as the bad guys, one of the things I want us to understand this morning is that thinking through the lens of the first century, the Pharisees, are you ready? They were respected. They were held in high regard by most people. They were pillars of the community. And this Pharisee in particular, it says he goes to the temple and he stands up and he says loudly to himself so everyone can hear him, Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you made me who I am. I'm not a sinner. I'm not greedy. I'm not a glutton. God, thank you for making me who I am. And that prayer, friends, it's genuine. That prayer is genuine. We have a prayer from the Mishnah, a book that was written about 150 years after Jesus. And in that prayer book, there are the prayers of the rabbis who say things like, God, thank you for making me who I am. Thank you, God, that I am not a woman because in the ancient culture, women weren't allowed to study the Torah. God, thank you that I'm not a Gentile because the Gentiles haven't received the good Torah of God. So thank you for making me who I am. The prayer of that Pharisee in the moment, that wasn't a prayer of arrogance. It was a prayer that was seen in its context as good and true and right. And then he gets to the moment where he says, God, not only thank you for making me who I am, but look at what I do. I give a tenth of all I have. I give a tenth of all I have and I fast twice a week. Do you understand in that culture to fast once a week was considered to be extremely devout. This guy is the cream of the crop. And to tithe 10%, not just 10% of a, of a few things, but he tithes 10% of all that he has. Ancient documents will sometimes say, give 10% of certain and particular things, of cumin, mint, dill. But this guy says, I not only give 10% of a little, I give 10% of everything. I was talking to one of my friends the other day. And he calls me with a religious question and he said, Will, I was having a, a, a debate with my wife and she said, uh, when are we gonna start tithing in the way that we should? And he said, and, and I wanna ask you the question before we actually get into the rhythm, are we supposed to tithe 10% of our gross income or 10% of our net income? And I said, buddy, if you're asking that question, you're ahead of 99.999% of people, but the answer is gross. See, this is the sort of religious man that, I, that is in the story. The Pharisee, he's not braggadocious. He's devout. He loves God and he loves other people. And so he would have been celebrated in its original context. Contrary to what we think that the, that the Pharisees were seen as bad guys and crooks, no, this one, this one was upstanding and righteous. And then the second character in the story, because there were two men that went up to the temple. There was the Pharisee, and then there was the tax collector. Now, if you're a Christian and you, and you grew up in the church, you know tax collectors primarily from one man, a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, and he climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And you, you, do you know it? And as the Savior passed away, he looked up at the 
tree. And he said, Zacchaeus, we're going to your house today. And there's celebration and there's joy. And so we who have inherited the stories of Zacchaeus and of Matthew and other tax collectors throughout the story, we see the tax collectors in a sympathetic light. They're characters we can empathize with. And that's fine up to a degree. But if we really want to understand the power of the parable that Jesus is giving to us, how were the tax collectors seen in the first century? That's the question we really need to get to. And if you want to understand how tax collectors were seen, you have to remember, and this is really important, that the Jews in the first century, the entirety of Israel, were held under the thumb of the Roman Empire, the most oppressive military superpower that the world had ever known. And everywhere you went in Jerusalem and across Israel, you would have seen Roman military legions and Roman military officials standing guard, waiting to crush you if you crossed them. And the tax collector was part of the imperial machine. And the tax collector's job was to go from house to house in Israel and to make sure that everyone who had the pleasure of living under the empire of Rome was paying their dues. That's who the tax collector was in the first century and in this context. And while the Pharisee was held up as a model of virtue and a paradigm of good religious behavior, the tax collector, if we're willing to see it through first century eyes, here's what you need to know. That he was a part of the Roman Empire. And ultimately that meant he was hated. He was universally hated by all people. In the first century, a Jew would have already paid a temple tax and then on top of the temple tax, he was charged a tax by Rome. John Dominic Crossan talks about how that tax rate would have effectively been upwards of 75 and 80%. If you think FDR's tax rates were difficult, wait until you live in the context of the Roman Empire, okay? And on top of that tax rate, then, then you had the tax collector who through historical documents, we know would knock on houses, say pony up to Rome. And then when they had given their money, you know what he said? Pony up to me. And he would take a little extra for himself. And so the tax collector, when we think through first century eyes, was one of the most vile, one of the most despicable people that you could ever possibly imagine. And two men went up to the temple to pray. A Pharisee, and a tax collector. And thinking not with 21st century American eyes, but with first century Jewish eyes, when we reach the climax of the story and they have both said their piece and Jesus says, who walked away justified? Every single person, every single person that was listening to that story would have immediately said, well, obviously the Pharisee obviously the one who does all the right things in all the right spaces and in all the right times. And that's where we get lost because we immediately think in all the wrong ways. But if we understand the context, everyone would have said the Pharisees and precisely in the moment where we least expect it, where we least expect it, what Jesus does. And it would shock our systems is to say, in fact, it's the tax collector. It's the person you hate. It's the one who oppresses you. 
It's the one who, if you had the chance, you would pop his tires and punch him in the face. That's the one who walks away justified before God. And we've domesticated these stories of Jesus, but if we can hear them in their proper context, listen, friends, here's what Jesus does. Jesus turns our assumptions upside down. And the lines we draw of who is good and who is bad in the light of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is all turned upside down on its head. You see, Jesus turns our assumptions upside down. And the Pharisee walks away not in right relationship with God and not in right relationship with others. But the hated scoundrel tax collector goes back home with peace in his heart. The question is why? Why would Jesus say such a bold and provocative thing? Now, the standard answer is that the Pharisee is trying to earn God's love. And you can't earn God's love. But what I want to tell you this morning is that if you understand context and history, the Pharisee wasn't trying to earn God's love. The Pharisee knew that God loved him because he was Jewish. He was a child of Abraham. The Pharisee did all these incredible things, not because he had to. The Pharisee did all these incredible things because he was supposed to. And this whole idea of works righteousness with the Pharisees and the repentant heart of the tax collector, it's fine up to a point. But the reason, listen, y'all, the reason that the Pharisee walked away not in right relationship with God, the reason that the Pharisee walked away estranged from his relationship to the father of all creation, it doesn't have to do with his good works. What it has to do is with his heart. Because what he is doing and the ultimate flaw that he has is not to say, God, look at all the good things I do, but to look at the tax collector, to look at the specific human being who is standing right in front of him and saying, God, thank you that I'm not him. Thank you that I'm not him. Because as long as there's a him in the world, that means I'm not the worst one. And he engaged in what is one of the most profound arts of American culture these days. It's called whataboutism. It's called whataboutism. Anytime somebody gets caught doing something wrong, if you wanna know what I'm talking about, just, just watch some politicians, okay? Anytime somebody gets caught doing something wrong, anytime somebody makes a terrible moral decision, and our politicians seem to do a lot of that these days, don't they? What they will do undoubtedly is say, well, what about him? What about him? He's worse than me. And as long as I don't have to look at me, I can always point to him. And the Pharisee stands up before God and his fatal flaw is that rather look inside his, his own heart. Look at him, God. Look at, the, look at the tax collector. Look how bad he is. I had a friend who called me a few weeks ago and we're talking about his life and he recognizes he's got a drinking problem and he knows he needs to get it under control. And he said to me, Will, I know I'm drinking six or seven beers a night, but, but, but my neighbor's drinking a fifth of vodka. So what about him? Hey, 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 listen, I know, I know I've got an unhealthy relationship with the materialism that is rampant and dominant in our age. I, I know I probably spend more money than I ought to, but what about her? She just bought a new Range Rover. 
What, what about him? He just got the new thing. And as long as you can point to the flaws in someone else's life, then you don't have to look inside of your own soul. And ultimately, that's what was happening in this story. The Pharisee stood up, and rightly he celebrated the good things he's done. But wrongly, he says to another human being, look at him, God. Look how broken he is. If he's that broken, then I must be okay. He engaged in whataboutism. And I believe it was Jesus who, who, who said, why do you try and take the speck out of your brother's eye when there's a plank in your own? Why did the tax collector walk away justified while the Pharisee walks out with a broken heart? And ultimately, friends, you get to that tax collector who walks up and he stands far away from everyone else. And he knows he's hated. He knows his job, quite frankly, is despicable. But he never points the finger at another person. And he simply bows his head. Lord, have mercy on me. And it doesn't matter what he is doing or what she is doing or what they are doing. Lord, have mercy on me. And Jesus is inviting us in this parable to do something profound. He's inviting us to take a deep look inside of our own hearts. And so the ultimate question that we have to wrestle with this morning is really pretty simple. Here's what it is. What is the state of your heart? What is the state of your heart? And recognize how easy it is, y'all, to point the finger at somebody else. Look at them. But the power of this parable is to look inside of yourself. What is the state of your heart? Now, if I stopped right there, it'd be fantastic. But I wanna go one step further because Jesus does the thing that he always does, which is confounding expectations even more. Because we grew up in a religious culture and most of us grew up in church and undoubtedly you've heard this sermon a thousand times. And I want you to be honest. I want you to be honest. I know it's not an easy thing to do in church sometimes, is it? But I want you to try and be honest. How many of you, when you heard this parable, how many of you, when you read this parable this morning, the first thing you thought was this, I'm so glad I'm not that Pharisee. I'm so glad that I'm not that Pharisee. And the great irony is the moment you think that thought and you know you did, that's who you've become. See, ultimately, friends, it's not about other people. It's not about the flaws of another human being, but it is an invitation, this parable, to look inside of your own soul. Psalm 51 is a psalm of David. It's one of my favorite psalms in the whole of Scripture, and it's a psalm of pain where he's pouring out his heart because he knows how broken he is. And he doesn't point the finger at other people, but in Psalm 51, 10, he has these incredible words that I hope you can pray for yourself this morning. Here's what he says. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew my spirit within me because it's not about other people, but it's about me. Against you only I have sinned and done evil in your sight. So create in me a clean heart, O God. And ultimately, friends, that's the question that I want you to wrestle with this morning. Not pointing the finger at other people, but simply looking inside of your own self. 
Lord, have mercy on me. Knowing how broken we are, each and every one of us, no matter how hard we try, knowing how sinful we can be, hear the good news this morning that you are saved by grace through faith and not of your own doing. You receive mercy through the goodness of Christ who died for me and who died for you. And so we, with humble hearts, bow our heads and simply say those words of the tax collector, God, have mercy on me. And on this day, we give thanks to God that it has been received. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. May we all be so bold as to pray that prayer this morning. Join me as we pray together. God, we are grateful. We are grateful for the time we have spent together. We are grateful that we dedicate children to your glory. We are grateful that we hear beautiful music. But most of all, God, we are grateful this morning that we are forgiven. We don't, we don't need to point out the flaws of other people. We don't need to look at the shortcomings and the failings of others in our lives because, God, what you are saying this morning is that ultimately the question is about us. And so for each friend who is here in this room, oh, God, give us the courage to look deep inside of our own souls. And just like that tax collector, broken though he was, bold enough to say, Lord, have mercy on me because I'm a sinner. May we each pray that prayer this morning and then may we receive the good news that through the grace of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. We are made whole. We are your own. For that, oh God, we are grateful above all else. So be with us now as we worship and as we celebrate your goodness. This is our prayer and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.